Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, David Blanchett explains the importance of flexibility concerning retirement withdrawal rates. Christine Benz talks about how a Biden tax proposal could change how investment gains are taxed for some. Russ Kinnell discusses funds. And we share a high-quality company in the world of power sports that's considered a bargain. Let's get started. Here are Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. and David Blanchett from Morningstar Investment Management. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. Many retirees or soon-to-be retirees have heard the admonition about being conservative about their in-retirement withdrawal rates. Joining me to discuss that topic is David Blanchett. He's head of retirement research for Morningstar Investment Management. David, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. David, you have researched withdrawal rates extensively. Let's just start with a basic question. Many investors have heard about the 4% guideline for in-retirement portfolio withdrawals. Do you think that's still a good starting point? I do. So um, I, uh, let, I guess we can, we can go way back and define all the terms. And so um, the 4% rule was something that um, Bill Bengen and others came, kind of came up with about 25 years ago, um, or maybe more than that now. And you know what it suggests is that when you first retire, you can take out 4% from your portfolio and then increase that amount every year for inflation, and it'll last for about 30 years. Um, 4% actually isn't the best name for it because the 4% is only the first year of, of, of income. After that, it's a fixed amount. I think a, you know, one divided by 4% is 25 times. Like you, can take, you need 25 times your income goal when you first retire. Like that's what the rule says. And you know, one, I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the early research. I thought it was, it was groundbreaking. It's, it's still widely cited. Um, you know, uh, there are some kind of issues that people have with it. You know, it didn't include fees initially. Um, and it was based upon historical U.S. returns. And um, by any metric, the, the U.S. has had really good returns historically versus any other country in the world. And there's also questions of, you know, are they relevant today, right? The, the long-term average yield on U.S. government bonds is, is close to 5%. Um, for those of you that are aware of the current market conditions, we're not, we're not close to a 5% yield today on 10-year government bonds. And so if you rerun the numbers using Bengen's original approach or others, you get a, a much more conservative initial withdrawal rate, say say 3%. You know, that being said, um, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of the assumptions that, that were that's used in this research are really conservative. You know, it assumes that failure occurs if you cannot achieve the same amount of income in today's dollars every year for 30 years. If you fall $1 short, it says that you failed. Um, it fails to kind of acknowledge that people can change their mind, they can change the withdrawal rate, kind of other sources of guaranteed income. So I still like 4% as a starting place for the, for the, for the discussion. Um, however, it really is personalized and it's based upon kind of each retiree's um, facts and situation. Okay. So speaking of that, one other potential sort of limitation to the 4% guideline is that many retirees are further along in their retirement careers and they're seeking a check on whether what they're spending is a sustainable amount. How would you suggest they approach uh, kind of checking up on whether they're taking out too much, too little, uh, and so forth? So like my my favorite rule of thumb for retirees, and this is actually like incredibly efficient, is is similar to what you do for required minimum distributions, right? So um, you know, just you just take one and you say, well, how many years do I want to plan for retirement, my retirement to last? Um, and let's say you say I want to plan for 20 more years. Well, then five percent 
one divided by 20 is 5%, um, is actually a pretty good starting place for what you should be withdrawing from that portfolio. Now, it isn't perfect, but you know, if, if, if you're planning for retirement to last you know, 30 years and you're taking out 8%, um, that's not going to be within the kind of margin of safety that would be suggested by that rule. You have done extensive research on withdrawal rates, and you've already discussed how sensitive, advisable withdrawal rates are to what's going on with current yields. Yields have begun to come up a little bit in 2021. Does that affect the prognosis? Could retirees potentially take more if yields get <clears throat> significantly better? Don't don't jinx it, Christine. You know we could <laughs> we could go could go back below one one percent. You know it, it kind of does, right? And so I think that like the the one thing that that is kind of wrong with a lot of financial plans is that they assume that 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 you make a decision when you retire and then you follow that path with really out changing it for thirty years. And and the answer is yes. Like you know if if yields do rise that would suggest you can take more income. But at the same time, like we don't know what will happen with life expectancies, with, with the stock market, everything else. And so, it, you know, the fact that yields are rising, for the most part, it's, it's good news for retirees. However, we just don't know how long it's going to last and what else happens. And so it is, it is good news. But, you know, if you're in retirement, you still could have 20 or 30 years to go. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't celebrate too much just yet. Okay. So if there's a common thread among the retirement research that's been done over the past few decades, it's that flexibility is really valuable if retirees can be somewhat flexible in terms of how much they take out of their portfolio, that can go a long way toward making sure that their portfolios last and specifically if they can take less when the market is down. A lot of the sort of guidelines related to flexible withdrawals get really complicated. Are there any more simplified ways that you like? You referenced the RMD method. Um, are there any other ways that retirees can approach tethering their withdrawals to what's going on with their portfolios? Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, you mentioned flexibility. And to be honest, that's like one of the, like, the most important thing I would, I would say might draw, drive that withdrawal rate. Because if you're someone that like, needs a certain amount of income every year increased for inflation or, or whatever without fail, you know, two and a half or three percent could be your withdrawal rate today. You know, but if you're like most Americans, you say, hey, you know, I, I got I got a decent amount of money from Social Security. You know, I can cut back if I need to, you know, then four or five percent works. And, you know, there's there's probably, you know, almost two decades now of 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 research on what are called dynamic withdrawal strategies. How do you adjust the withdrawal rate as you move through retirement? And to your point, a lot of these are, are really, really complex and they don't necessarily do a very good job of incorporating like non-constant cash flows and everything else. And so I, I think that for, for most people, unless you have access to like a really advanced financial planning software tool, some kind of RMD type strategy where you are thinking, okay, I want to plan this to last X number of years. One divided by that number is, is the base withdrawal rate. That's, that's a really good place to start. Okay. And the other advantage is that you can update it based on what you anticipate will be your life expectancy. So you can potentially take more as you age. Right. And, and, and obviously it should, it, it, you know, the amount adjusts as your balance changes. And, you know, uh, people would say, well, if the market goes down by 30% or whatever, you know, do I have to, do I have to take out 30% less? No, you can, you can smooth things over time, but just, just be aware of, Hey, you know, if, if you're, if you're following the same path and the market's start going down or something were to happen, you need to be aware of kind of where you're trending in terms of the overall likelihood that your, that your strategy will last as long as you need it to. 
Okay, David, it's always great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for being here. Sure thing. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. look at the potential impact of Biden's tax proposal. I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. A proposal from the Biden administration would change the way investment gains are taxed for some investors. Joining me to share some perspective on the proposal is Christine Benz, Christine's Director of Personal Finance at Morningstar. Hi, Christine. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Susan. Great to be here. So let's start with some stage setting. Can you sort of walk us through what's in the proposal? Right. There are two main prongs to it. The first would affect the highest capital gains rate. It's currently 20%, 23.8% when you add in the Medicare sur- surtax. It would go up to 39.6% or, or over 43% once you factor in that surtax. So this is a big jump up. This would only apply to people who have incomes of over a million dollars. So if you're selling highly appreciated stock in a year in which your income is over a million dollars, you would be subject to this higher tax. The second prong of the proposal relates to what's called the step up in cost basis that heirs enjoy when someone dies and passes on an asset to them. As things stand today, each person who inherits an asset, if you inherit an asset from someone else and it has appreciated a lot since that person initially purchased it, those gains in the security while the person held it essentially get washed away. And you, your cost basis as the person inheriting the stock is the price of the security on the date of death. This proposal would eliminate the step up for gains of more than a million dollars. So those are the two main components of this proposal as as we've seen it today. Now, what would need to happen, Christine, for this proposal to actually become law? Well, a lot, because it it needs to get through a deeply divided Congress. This is a proposal by the Biden administration, but as we know, Congress is pretty evenly split by party and also philosophically. So this uh, proposal has a ways to go before there's any certainty around it, which is one reason why it really makes sense to sit tight, wait for more information, and don't proactively make changes to your portfolio because this may or may not happen. So even if this proposal is enacted, you don't think it's really going to affect most investors. Walk us through that. Well, it really won't. So most people to be subject to this new higher capital gains tax, you'd have to tick two boxes. So you'd have to be selling securities and your income would need to be over a million dollars. So that's a rarefied subset of investors right there. Most investors aren't anywhere near that income level. And even if they are, they may have the opportunity to perhaps sell appreciated securities in lower tax years when they come in under that threshold. It's kind of a similar thing with this step up that most people die 
to the extent that they die and they have assets left over, oftentimes those would be retirement accounts, which are not subject to capital gains tax rates. And to the extent that they might have taxable assets, well, they probably wouldn't have gains in excess of this $1 million threshold. So this is not going to apply to most mainstream investors. It's, it's generally crafted to affect the very highest income, uh, highest uh, portfolio value investors the most. So what tax planning or portfolio strategies would you recommend to an investor who may think he or she could actually be subject to this new higher capital gains right down the road or to the step up in basis? Right. This These proposals generally embellish the case for using retirement accounts first for maxing out those either tax-deferred or Roth vehicles, which are not subject to capital gains uh, tax, nor are they eligible for the step-up in basis. So it, we knew that we should be maxing out those accounts, but this proposal, should it become enacted, would really underscore the benefits of doing so. It would also argue for charitable giving to the extent that you're charitably inclined to making sure that you're giving appreciated assets to charity. That makes sense really no matter what the tax regime, but it would be especially beneficial in a higher tax regime where if you're gifting assets to charity, you're essentially able to to remove the tax liability associated with those assets from, from your estate. It also argues for being a bit artful about how you sell appreciated assets that you'd want to really be thoughtful about disposing of them in years in which you wouldn't be on the hook for this higher capital gains tax. So those are a few different things that you might consider. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and for this thoughtful analysis of this proposal. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill or visit Morningstar.com Alexa. Next, Susan Jabinski talks funds with Russ Kinnell from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. In late April, Morningstar made some changes to the way it categorizes world stock funds. Joining me today to discuss those changes is Russ Kinnell. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hey, Russ. Thanks for being here today. Glad to be here. So let's start by unpacking what the changes are and why Morningstar made them. That's right. Uh, we're splitting the world large stock category into three categories by style. So uh, world large value, world large blend, world large growth. Obviously, it's what we've done with U.S. equity and what we've done with foreign equity. Uh, now we're doing it with world stock. So, so why right now? Why is now the time to do this with world stock? As you mentioned, we have been doing it for foreign stock funds and, and domestic stock funds for quite a while. Yeah, it's, it's nothing dramatic, but I think uh, we are seeing more funds that are specifically dedicated to either the value or the growth side. And then, of course, uh, the last couple of years, we've had really extreme performance by value and growth. And so it sort of magnifies the problem of having them all in together where uh, you kind of make every growth fund look like a champ and every value fund look like a dud when growth does really well. 
So will these category changes have any impact on the analyst ratings that we assign to the world stock funds in general? Uh, probably not very much because we already were thinking about them in terms of uh, their, their own style. We, we tend to be kind of agnostic and think over the next five to 10 years, we don't know if value or growth is going to outperform. So uh, I don't expect it to have a big impact now. So let's take a look category by category at some of the funds whose longer term returns now look pretty good uh, relative to their peers now that they're in a, a new category that better fits their style. Maybe let's start with um, the world lar- uh, the world growth stock category. Um, sure. So uh, uh, growth has been the dominant place uh, even after uh, this nice little value rebound. Uh, world large growth funds are returning about 17% annualized over the trailing 10 years versus seven for, for value. So growth is still the place, has, had, was the place to be. Uh, Tiro Price Global Stock, American Funds, New Economy, Artisan Global Opportunities uh, are among the, the very highest returners in world stock. And Russ, what about some of the standout long-term returning funds in the uh, world large value category now? Uh, yeah, the impact was really dramatic here. So funds like Oakmark Global and Artisan Global Value have uh, leapt to the top of their peer group from looking maybe above average versus the old peer group, but now they really look like uh, world beaters against both peers and benchmark. Uh, and then just below them, it's kind of dramatic to see uh, Dodge and Cox Global and Franklin Mutual Beacon, which their five and 10 year returns were uh, a little bit below average before. Uh, and now they're top quartile. So it really shows uh, how dramatic uh, that changes uh, from splitting the, the categories up. And that really highlights uh, funds like Oakmark Global that we, I mean, as well as uh, uh, Dodge and Cox Global where we think they're really good funds and now uh, the returns uh, kind of bear that out a little more. And lastly, how about that group that sort of ends up in the blend category? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, American funds, uh, capital world growth income is a fund that goes from, say, average to a little above average. Uh, but the real star is uh, MFS Global Equity, which uh, goes from top third to top 10%. Uh, we rate that one gold. Uh, and, and now I think the new uh, categories really highlight that uh, it's, a, it's a good fund that's uh, got really does a good job of making the best use of MFS's depth uh, globally, and, and you can really see that now. Well, Russ, thank you so much for your time today. It sounds like these refinements are, are really going to be useful for investors evaluating world stock funds. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. And lastly, we take a look at a power sports powerhouse whose shares are on sale. More than 65 years ago, Polaris started to build its reputation and brand by producing snowmobiles. In the decades since, the company has expanded into all-terrain vehicles, motorcycles, people movers, boats, and, in short order, electric vehicles, building a recreational and utility vehicle powerhouse. Holding leading market share positions in the categories in which it operates has ensured the company's brand remains relevant. We believe that when consumers replace or think about purchasing products in the snowmobile and off-road categories, they tend to want the best products with the newest technology, which is what Polaris provides, yielding stability in pricing and solid brand perception.
The company's favorable brands, innovative products, and lean manufacturing support the firm's wide economic moat. Going forward, we expect Polaris will continue to capitalize on its research and development, solid quality, operational excellence, and acquisition strategy to grow demand. Polaris has historically generated top-notch returns on invested capital, including goodwill, and should be able to deliver around 45% metrics by 2030, well above our weighted average cost of capital assumption. While the company is facing near-term headwinds in the form of inflation and logistics costs, as well as supply chain constraints, we think demand stemming from product launches and dealer backfill will allow Polaris to grow sales and earnings per share over the long term. While the second half of 2021 could offer a slower pace of retail sales growth as it laps robust second half 2020 demand, strong wholesale shipments are likely to persist into 2022 in order to close the product shortage gap at retail. Over the next decade, we surmise the company could achieve average sales growth of 5% and earnings per share growth of 11%. We think shares are worth $173 a piece. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.